0: This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Sebastian Evans is Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of NAOS Asset Management. Sebastian spends most of his time sifting through the smallest companies on the stock market, and when he finds the right opportunity, he is willing to take a very big stake and hold the shares for many years. Sebastian takes us through what he looks for in businesses and in management teams, the benefits of running a listed investment company, tricks and traps for small company investing, and his favourite podcasts. My favourite story from Sebastian is him asking friends and family for some help to buy NAOS a decision which set him on a path to becoming one of Australia's most respected small company investors. Considering he is in his early 30s, I was very impressed with his level of insight, but also his transparency and humility. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Sebastian Evans of NAOS Asset Management. Sebastian, thanks for joining me on the show.
1: No, you're all right. Thanks for having me.
0: When I was doing my research on you, i got to admit there wasn't as much content or information that I could draw upon um, as perhaps some of our prior, previous guests so I'm going to be led by you with some of the, your history and mm-hmm. how you came to be in the position that you're in today yep. so let's go back to the beginning yeah where did you grow up and where did your journey yeah. towards investing begin
1: yeah so um first of all thanks for having me but yeah as I tell all of my investors when I'm pitching for money or shareholders um we're not the usual funds management business. The usual funds management business is, you know, I've worked at UBS or I worked at a big big funds management firm, and I mm. made so much money that I thought I'd, I'd leave and start my own. Um, it's the complete opposite of that. So I, I'm a Sydney born and bred, born in Manly, um, or grew up in Manly for a little bit, and then moved around. And I, um, I suppose the only point that really matters is when I was very young, my my parents separated, but. A little bit different than the fact that my old man brought me up. Okay. Normally it's not the case. Many, yeah. many, many years ago. And dad dad was a broker um, and he was the original managing director of Macquarie Equities, which so he always invested in equities. I was mm. always around it. Um, as I told you previously, I had no interest in getting into the industry. Mm. I always wanted to do something else. Um, at one stage I was learning to fly and wanted to, you know, fly around the world, work for Qantas no, or not. whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then I suppose it dawned on me that, Maybe, I remember the flight actually, maybe this probably wasn't for me. I don't know if I want to sit in a plane for, you know, 14 hours and, yes. you know, n- n- never never be around home. And so I um, finished school, did a commerce degree. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't bright enough and I was extremely lazy that I didn't get into Sydney or New South Wales. So I went up to Queensland, went to Bond, um, didn't even get into a commerce degree there. So I did, they made me do business.
0: Is that Bond on the Gold Coast? Yeah,
1: on yeah, the Gold Coast. So, yeah, they made me... Do, do business, prove myself. So I had to get through stats and business mathematics, which at the time, it sounds easy now, but at the time I remember it was bloody hard, um, and got through it. So I did my commerce degree, major in finance and international business, um, and then I did my master's in applied finance. And I came back down here and just sort of hit seek and thought, well, what am I going to do? Mm. And so I got a job at Bell Potter as basically like a, I suppose like a clerk, sort of like mm. desk assistant. Uh, which was fine, but sort of found out that wasn't the, the first thing or the best thing that I wanted to do. I've always been reasonably, um, I like my autonomy, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. And so out of the blue, um, a person I've known for a very long time since, you know, since I was probably six months old, um, David O'Halloran, who's, who's my largest shareholder, um, approached me. I remember he gave me 10 books. He said, go and read these 10 investment books. Get back to me in six months and we'll chat. And so I read these books, and you you would know most of the books. Some examples, perhaps? Oh, I suppose like you know even some of the Warren Buffett. I remember he gave me the Warren Buffett essays. Oh, yeah. You know, so he mm-hmm. got someone to print them off for and said, so "Here are <laughs> all the essays. Go and go and read them." And so I did that, and then I approached him, and he said, "All right, well, um, why don't you work?" He was at Southern Cross Equities, which was a broking firm. So he'd come and work with me as an assistant analyst. He was in research. I said, "That's fine," but he said, "Actually, I've also." Have a small share in a firm called Naos, which was a funds management business at the time. Right. and I said, "All right, well, I'll start there as a small cap equities analyst." And at the time, Naos was owned by part owned by Southern Cross Equities, mm-hmm. and I started in 2007 well, 2007, and that was it. Um, but I suppose the bit that everything everything changed uh, was we only had about forty to fifty million dollars at the time, and the GFC came along, and essentially, you know, changed the industry mm. as we knew it. And it changed it for us because Southern Cross were bought out by Bell Potter, which is a funny way of how the how the circle mm-hmm. works. And they had an asset management business, and they didn't want NIOS, so it was losing money. Um, a lot of our funds walked out the door, so the funds went from 40 to six million, um, and wow. it was put up for sale. But I was lucky enough that um, I had the people around me, so family and friends um, gave me didn't give me, but essentially contributed. I can remember the figure it was like one point seven million dollars, wow. and said, "Here you go, go and buy the license, buy the name, and let's see if we can get it to break even." Oh, and that was it, and that was that was sort of that was eleven years, ten years ago, and that's we was me, me and two others, and at one stage we didn't, I, we couldn't afford an office for the first three years, so I basically just <laughs> yeah anyone who liked us and was willing to give us some space that was, that was us for the for the first few years.
0: We were talking off air just a moment ago, yeah. and you were saying about. You're talking about your your first experience giving a presentation in mm. front of some investors. Can yeah,
1: you... so yeah, I was telling you that was so that was actually so that would have been right after the or we in the midst of the GSC, and I remember the person I was working for at the time at Naos. Um, I, I was all very new to this, but you know, it's like oh, we you know they normally hold. I remember we had one shareholder presentation i think that was down at the one of the family intercontinental down in sydney and that, that's okay. the first one i saw actually so well, this is the second one so that was fine that was 07 everyone was very happy and then i changed Then you know the few people left the business and i remember the managing director and the chief investment officer said why don't you come to our shareholder presentation i was like okay it's like well where's this one it's like oh it's down at you know this golf club we're using one of their rooms um and i remember my first ever presentation, you walk in and I think there was a string quartet of four or five people and I think we only had about seven people turn up on like those <laughs> old primary school chairs as I remember when I went to primary school. Um, and uh, the first presentation I ever did, and I think uh, the first stock I ever spoke about was Redflex, which is a Melbourne stock yeah. where they make speed cameras. And that was 10 years ago. But that was, yeah, that was that would have been rock bottom. That, that was it right there. I mean, uh, and to be honest, there's still one of those people who actually called the other day um, is still a shareholder today, still an investor. He left an impression. Yeah, I think he put a hundred grand in. I remember after that, I think he might have put another hundred thousand dollars in, and that was it. And then he's been with us ever since. Oh, so fantastic! Yeah, that's a great story.
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you said it's not—it's probably atypical for the funds management mm-hmm. industry for you to buy another business, mm. um, and especially during the GFC, it would have looked pretty bleak. Mm. Can you describe um, what you were doing during the GFC in particular? Like, I, I believe that your performance was pretty good. Yeah. Um, what are some lessons learned there and, and I suppose along that, along that journey and that stretch out of the, yeah. the GFC? Look,
1: I think the GFC is a funny one because I think everyone you speak to, I mean the amount of planners and fund managers you, ever, you speak to you now, everyone's like – I didn't lose money in the GFC the amount of people that seem to tell you that's quite intriguing you know we don't shy away from the fact that we lost money in the GFC I mean you've got to remember I was very young but I think the thing that I really learned coming going into the GFC and coming out and I think if you look at a lot of people's performance numbers is really how you came out of it I mean that that really separated mm. the winners from the losers if mm. you want to say it like that and it was really your ability to buy quality assets at Really discount, discounted prices, and at like you know, there were no buyers. I remember buying some stocks, and all it would have been all of 23. Um, you know, you got directors with margin loans, you know, there was lots of that back in the GFC. You know, I remember Challenger had a big one. Um, you know, just a lot of fund managers were losing money, everyone was getting out of small caps. A lot of fund managers just closed their small cap funds down. So it was really your ability to say, Well, this is a good asset, regardless of the environment. Uh, So if we take a longer term view, we're happy to allocate um, to some of these businesses. And in hindsight, it was the best decision that we ever made because you know, subsequently, everyone looks at it now and says it's obvious, but subsequently with all the quantitative easing and everything that's happened, it really put a floor under the market and equities have really rallied ever since. Mm -hmm. But that sort of coming out of the GFC in that first two-year period, some of these assets... You know, if you look at CPA shares and things like that, I mean, they essentially doubled and yeah. tripled. Um, you know, so and that's and that's where we did very well. Um, in hindsight, though, was
0: were you investing in small caps exclusively? Yeah,
1: we've always done small caps. Yeah. So we had a we had, at that time we had an absolute return fund, which is larger, so more mid cap, which we've got now as well, which is our NAC fund. Um, so we, we'll always only invest in micro to mid. Yeah. Um, but I put, I put a big disclaimer on it, excuse me, that um, we say micro and small, but if you compare our portfolio to a lot of others, um, it would be very small. So I'm right. sure you get some people in here and say I do small caps and they're billion-dollar companies. When mm-hmm. I come in here, I say I'm doing small caps. Like I'm meeting someone after this and their company. We own 20% of their company and it's capped at $25 million. Oh, wow. You know, like we really – go small mm. um, which sets us apart you'd almost find no other fund manager I would argue that takes the concentrated positions that we do in mm. in that smaller business I suppose yeah so
0: when you said you touched on liquidity when you said that there were effectively no buyers for shares during the GFC yeah and now you you just mentioned the same. yeah, yeah. you take a 20% stake yeah. you're obviously very comfortable with no liquidity like
1: yeah very minimal some people say it's my age but no I'm, I'm a I'm a big believer that you know when people talk about performance it's funny now everyone talks about liquidity and in in theory liquidity shouldn't be part of the conversation in my view a lot of people will disagree with this right um, but if you look at a lot of people have done well over over the years for whatever reason a lot of it's in private business where there's really no liquidity mm. so why should it really be any different in the equity markets especially in some of these smaller businesses you know a lot of the more liquid businesses that you find are well-owned you know 15 fund managers own them Mm -hmm. you know they speak to the market all the time they're covered by every broker you know everyone knows what's going on but our view is we're different because 99 percent of our funds are listed in licks or listed investment companies and what that means is no one can redeem unfortunately or fortunately from from our funds so that means we can look at a position based on its return profile and not its liquidity profile where many fund managers operate funds or unit trusts and they'll take money through a PDS or a wrap platform that's fine but when money comes out they've got to start selling liquidating all these assets and that's where fund managers in my view especially ones that have done very well and i don't you know it's it's nothing wrong with this is you know people if you built up a business over a long time it's probably human nature to take less risk and be more index focused Mm. um to protect your business are you making the best decision for returns? Debatable. I mean, people will probably look at our last year returns and say, well, you were down 15%, so how can you say that? That's a fair comment. But my view is if you look at the longer-term returns, it, it does make a difference. Um, and we're at the stage where we're nimble enough, young enough, and we have closed funds that we can do these positions mm-hmm. that do put us out there. And you know, and when they do go wrong, you do look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully you get more right. Than wrong.
0: Yeah, mm. you touched on um, the closed end nature of a of mm. a LIC or a listed investment company. Let's get everyone on the same page. Can you explain what a listed investment company yeah. is and how maybe it differs from an ETF or a managed
1: fund? Or yeah. Like? So yeah. So a LIC, a listed investment company, is literally a company listed on the stock exchange that invests people's money into equities or debt or whatever. Whatever the I suppose the framework is given by the board. What that means is, well, if you raise $20 million in a company, then you have $20 million to invest. You can't make that bigger or smaller. It's really dictated by your investments. Um, So that means if people want to get into that lick, then they've got to buy shares on the stock market, and if they want to get out, then they sell. Um, The other way you can run a funds management business is to run a unit trust, as I said, so that's unlisted. So basically that means you go to... I think I'm allowed to say company names here, like RAP platform. So you get all Macquarie RAP or an MLC RAP and say, well, I want to allocate some money to this fund. So they take your $10,000 and put it into that fund and they issue you units. So essentially because they issue you new units, that fund gets bigger. Yep. Um, it's like your savings account getting bigger. So you've got more money you've got to deploy uh, and invest, which is fine. Um, But if your fund gets too big, then that means you've got too much funds to invest and you've got to go invest in bigger stocks and things like that. Um, So people tend to shy away from licks, albeit they have been popular lately because they are hard to grow and hard to manage, whereby a unit trust is you can take money all the time, Mm. but they can get redeemed all the time. Yeah,
0: Yeah, okay. And um, there's probably some other things about it. The... um in the sense of like fees and expenses are slightly different and you've got a board, like you said. Yeah. Um, and there's also discounts and premiums for people that are buying in and out there. Yeah. The share price can be, I yep. suppose, dislocated from the actual value of the portfolio that you're investing in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I want to fast forward from when you took over mm-hmm. NAOS and then it wasn't until, correct me if I'm wrong, 2013 or thereabouts that you launched your first Listed, lick, yeah. Lick. Mm-hmm. Was that because you saw the benefits and how it appealed to your investment
1: philosophy? No, um, <laughs> not not that intelligent at that time. Okay. Um, no, so we, as I said, we managed we managed um, two funds, which was, which went well. Our performance was good. Obviously, we wanted to get bigger because we're only small. We're running thirty five million, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember. So you had to, unfortunately, in Australia, and this is probably timely because of the royal commission. You know, you got, you had to jump through a few hoops to get bigger. So you know, for a fund to get bigger, you need to be on platforms. You need to. Mm be rated so i went went through the process got rated by a a, a, at the time was s&p which um Mm. thankfully left australia so we got the rating and then they left uh but you know then you can go to the rating and go to a platform provider and say well i've got the rating now put me on the platform they say well we'll put you on the platform but you've got to show that you've got 10 million dollars of demand it's like well you know what i'm 26 i'm learning the ropes here my fund's 35 million dollars there's no way i'm gonna find 10 no one's gonna give Mm. me 10 million dollars of demand so that didn't work So I remember dad said to me as a broker, um, and one of his, one of my other directors said, well, you know what? Why don't we launch a listed investment company? And at that time, I had no idea what a lick was because we were the first lick to list after the Magellan lick, which is now run by Chris Mackay. Mm -hmm. So years ago, years Mm. and years ago. Um, so we did that. So I remember we decided in November, I think we got our prospectus and everything lodged in about five weeks. And my chairman, David Rickards, who's my independent chair. I remember coming down here, and getting the train with Dave. Who always likes to use public transport, and we just pounded the pavement and raised the smallest amount possible of seventeen point three six million dollars, and that was it. Huh. And that we got we got it up. But in hindsight, it was the best thing we ever did because you know when you look at it, because it is closed. And that was NCC, so that's our micro cap fund, and that's sort of what we're known for. It was the best decision we ever made because it is closed we could make concentrated bets and our timing was excellent like our first two years of performance were were really good um and so we've grown that from 17 to 70 and then obviously we, now we have two other leaks.
0: why don't we step now into your investment process mm-hmm. give us the bird's eye view yeah. what, what what i suppose what's the philosophy of the three funds yeah and then we'll drill down yes
1: yeah, so i think from a Portfolio management point of view, the philosophy is, remember my roadshow slide, so, you know, really to have a long-term time horizon. And when I say long-term, we've had some investments in NCC that are still there, so they're six years old. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we want to work with management, be supportive, and I'm a big believer in compounding returns. I mean, some of your listeners, you know, if they've owned CSL shares or CBA shares Mm -hmm. and they've let those compound, they're probably their best investments as opposed to trading around. Then over that is really management alignment. So a lot of the businesses we, we back um, is a bit like my own business, is we try to back people who they tend to be founder led businesses that have a lot of skin in the game. So they've got a lot of equity. You know this is really it for them. You know this is their be all and end all essentially. Um, and a bit like how I treat my own funds. All my money's in the funds. I don't have any stocks outside the funds. We treat our own investments like like we do with with NIOS. And we try and keep it very simple. So we only invest in industrials. People say, why? Obviously, we have an ESG screen. um, But just as importantly is there's some businesses out there that I just can't value. Like I'm just – I'm not an expert in everything. My team's not an expert in biotech resources, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I can't put it on a piece of paper and explain it to you in five minutes, then it's probably not a great investment. And that's sort of our – Portfolio structure, how you pick a stock. You know, everyone sort of tries to ask, and you, know, well, you know, you go through your checklist and your corn <laughs> screen, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I tend to say it's a bit more of a, a science than a you know a set a set sort of formula. Um, and a lot of what I find is, you know, Australian equity markets, in my view, are a lot of a lot of businesses that are listed are very low quality. So, essentially, I think there's twenty six hundred. This might be wrong. Twenty six hundred mm-hmm. companies listed. You know, we run a screen, if you exclude the top 50, there's essentially, in our view, 100 to 200 investment-grade businesses. And when you mean investment-grade, like you are probably being quite lenient, Um, you know, that have revenue, it's reasonably predictable, you can understand the business, all that sort of stuff, gearing, things like that. So there's a lot of listed businesses that are crap and there are a lot of listed businesses that list for the wrong reasons. People list businesses because... They need money, which means it's probably a business that can't generate enough free cash flow, mm-hmm. or they're looking to sell and get out, which is mm. probably another not so great reason. So due to that, we look for a lot of businesses that, you know, have delivered on commitments or statements, you know, they can deliver on what they said 12 months ago. I think it's a great, one of the best things you can ever do as an investor is get go and get the presentation they gave 12 months ago. And go through it before you meet with management. You just, sometimes you can look at it and you say, you made all these statements. We're here twelve months ago, and now it's something completely different. So you always look for consistency. You look for shareholder alignment. You look for businesses that have low gearing, um, and you look for you know people that have a clear strategy. You know they have a clear competitive advantage and where they want to be in four, five, six, ten years time. And then we, as I tell all my shareholders, we try and get twenty percent per annum through a cycle. But when you invest in some of these small companies that like they can halve and they can double again. Um, you know, it's not easing being a listed business because I find that today, even more so than five years ago, people are just so focused on the next quarterly result or the next half yearly result. There's no incentive to reinvest. There's no incentive to make some of the harder decisions that are probably best for the business in the long, over the longer term. Everyone's, everyone wants profit. Everyone wants a bigger dividend. Mm. And that's all sort of they're really interested in.
0: So you think it's getting worse?
1: yeah i think it's hard yeah, yeah. And you look at our micro cap portfolio we haven't added one new stock in a year and a half wow yeah so when i say we don't trade <laughs> we don't trade.
0: You, you sort of took us through the the process there a bit you've, you know, you've got 2600 thereabouts yeah um it's filtered down through a quant screen yeah. then you have these certain criteria yeah when you speak to management I, I, i'm assuming that you speak to them quite regularly yeah, yeah. What, what are you looking for in the in the I suppose not just from like what you can read in an annual report in terms of alignment. What are you looking for from that person? You said consistency. Is there any other personal traits or anything that you look for?
1: They're all different. So you can't say personal trait, if I could (laughs) tell you some of of the conversations we have. And I think it's important. Like people say when you talk to management, like I I told you I did my Perth Roadshow on Thursday and I think I spoke to three MDs in the morning. So we have a really close relationship, which is good, Mm. good and bad. So, you know, when you look for personal traits – um, you know, I would say what we look for, yeah, is so alignment, obviously the industry knowledge. So some of them have worked in a similar industry. They have the contacts, they have the knowledge. You know, the ability to run a – like I say I know it's hard, but really, the really ability to run a public business, you know, is, is key. And, that you know, when people say public business, like what do that mean? It's like, well, you know, you set, you know, objectives, dividends, capital management is a big one. You know, how are you going to allocate your capital? Where's the best allocation of capital? Where's your highest return? As opposed to just sort of making poor short-term decisions. Um, and really proving to the market, as I said before, that you do have a clear competitive advantage. You are creating a competitive advantage by – providing a superior service at a lower cost superior service because no other service exists you know you're more nimble you can you can offer a better product whatever it is it's got to be have a clear competitive advantage so you can grow and you can scale i think the biggest thing i've always learned is you've got you've you've got to invest in businesses that can scale you've got to invest in businesses that aren't in an industry that's going backwards because I've tried that a couple of times and he thinks it's so cheap mm. um, and, and it kills you. You just can't fight the tide. Yeah. Mm. The
0: reason why I ask about management is because especially in small caps, governance can be in some instances perhaps non-existent. Yeah. So yeah, it's, 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 it's something that I focus a lot of my time on. You talked about um, acquisitions uh, in a recent blog post. I think maybe Ben wrote it. Yep. Um, and you're talking about competitive advantage. Yeah. When you look at these companies and you're looking at capital allocation, are you, are you looking for companies that are willing to reinvest in their competitive advantage? And do you, I suppose, get your guard up when they
1: yeah, look outside they of that? Outside. Yeah. So, now we always say our investment philosophy, if a business tends to do something that is completely sort of off-piste, mm-hmm. we tend to remove it from our portfolios. Um, but, you know, some great examples include, you know, we're a big shareholder in a business called O'Neuro. They do PR, uh, creative, Strategic insight. You know they've they're now the largest tech PR firm in the world. So they acquired They were weak in the U.S. So then they acquire a business in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Yeah, you know, a natural extension of what they do. A sound acquisition. Yep. They've known the woman, Barb's uh, for for years. They work together. You know, ticks. Right. You know, and the and the way you can sort of earn that. They go through the earnout. Is there's not a lot of capital put up front so it's quite de-risk from that point of view you know as opposed to a business even if it's a similar industry it might be 100 percent cash up front you might be gearing your balance sheet there are no earnouts um there's no skin in the game all the staff are leaving um you're not really getting any further extension of your product or your service or your customer base you're just buying earnings for a Mm short-term kick you know they're the things that would worry us um you know, governance and whatnot in small caps is a real issue and I've definitely learned the hard way again more recently that it's becoming, especially for us as, you know, the, sometimes the biggest shareholder um, is a lot of these businesses aren't run for shareholders, they're run for, mm. for management teams. But I'm a big believer that, that is changing. And it's changing because I think people care mm. and, and are willing to say, "Well, my voice needs to be heard." And whether or not you like it or not, you've at least got to listen to it. And if you disagree, disagree to my opinion or thoughts, then at least tell me why, and we can. Mm. We all want the best thing for this business, so let's let's talk it out.
0: And so, do you, yeah. as the largest shareholder, do you take an active stance against management? Do you ever, you ever confronted them over issues and said,
1: "Oh, yeah." <laughs> had some shockers over the years actually yeah no but even more recently you know i hate the word activist we're not an activist fund we're a supportive investor that wants to assist a business in growing whether it's through capital or contacts or whatever it is directors but no if, if we feel like um, we're being ignored and not only ignored but then the wrong decisions are being made in our view then yeah as i said you know we'll, we'll vote against um we'll vote certain ways depending on what comes up at agms um make our voice heard because at the end of the day it's my shareholders money it's not my money it's my shareholders money so that's as of it's why I'm doing my shareholder presentations I've got to go and report back to my shareholders mm-hmm. um but I, but I do think it is changing a lot uh, without a doubt
0: yeah when people look at the funds in the way that you invest it's probably they probably think small caps higher risk and yeah. they think long term holding potentially higher risk because you're taking yeah. big, big concentrated bets, bets. Yeah. yeah how many Positions are in the micro-cap
1: Yeah, so in our small-cap fund and micro-cap fund, I think there's nine each, yeah, so well, really small. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um,
0: and one of the, th- the issues with that, I suppose, I mean, you're, you're, you're fortunate that you are in a close end fund and, mm. and you don't have to deal with fund flows like other fund managers might have. How do you exit a position? Like, I, I mean, That's a very broad question, yeah, but um, do you do you buy slowly, sell slowly? Yeah, Is yes. Is that really your choice?
1: If I could give a... Um, yeah, you know, if if any of your listeners take something away from this, um, it'd be always average up. Okay, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, it's a good thing I think to average up. You yeah. know, to average up into investments that have proven their ability in the short term or medium term, and you feel more comfortable, and you feel like there's a there is a strategy that is evolving over time, and you can see the return profile being developed. That's how we tend to enter in positions, mm-hmm. um, albeit I'm not going to lie, we have averaged down before, and mm-hmm. sometimes you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, ultimately when you're trying to get out of investment, there's probably three ways. You know, the worst way is the investment simply just doesn't go according to plan for whatever reason, you know, and, and subsequently you decide that your risk return profile relative to what else you can invest in is, is not adequate anymore so you have to exit and then says, well, that's fine but how do you exit? And it's like, well, you, you exit at a, at a big discount, mm. you know. There is a price for everything mm. um, but sometimes that price will be 30 40 50% lower than what you paid for it. Or even more if it's a really bad investment so that's how you get out in the worst case scenario thankfully we've never had any that have gone into liquidation or administration the second way is well you know i suppose over time the strategy and the execution goes according to plan but in hindsight the financial benefits and the return profile wasn't what you expected and so that's a long-term investment that's gone nowhere mm-hmm. um And you probably get out, you know, just over time um, at a fair price, maybe the same price as what you paid. And that's happened a couple of times. And the best way to get out is obviously to have an investment, A, that goes according to plan. And this is how the Australian equity market works, unfortunately, is your micro cap investment goes according to plan. Profit grows, multiple grows up as well because people feel more comfortable. So, therefore, Mm -hmm. the share price goes up. They might raise some money you know, to acquire a business or expand, so therefore it gets bigger, falls into the universe of you know the magical $100 million market mm-hmm. cap figure. So then all these other funds go, well, now I can invest in it because it's big enough, so therefore we tend to sell into a lot of bigger funds because yep. it falls into their universe. That's the best way to get out of an investment because it, it proved it has worked, or the other way is corporate takeover. Yep. Someone goes, well, thanks very much. The equity market's not valuing this correctly, so I'll just... Lob a short-term bid and, and and take everyone out.
0: You touched on something before about well, firstly buying up, and then earlier you said tailwinds. Would you describe yourself as a bottom-up investor? So, yeah, company my stuff. company. When you are looking at tailwinds, I suppose. Um, can you give us some examples of recent tailwinds that you've ident- identified? Yeah, yeah,
1: so my on, on my whole roadshow presentations about it, so it's easy for me. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, the five tailwinds that we've we've picked in our presentation is, I think, off the top of my head. So, the first one is. You, know, you say infrastructure spend in Australia, and everyone rolls their eyes. But um, <laughs> you know, if you, as I said, if if you look at the CIMIC presentation, which is one of the largest contractors in Australia, you know, I think the, the forecast now for transport infrastructure projects is now out to twenty twenty three. Like I know, I think Melbourne's overtaking Sydney as in infrastructure spend over the next couple of years, and I know in Sydney we're spending a fortune, Mm -hmm. so I'm sure you guys are about to as well. Another one is you know MBN, Um, unfortunately because it's probably not based on the world's best technology, so not only more households got to be activated. In our view, whether or not Labor gets in, there'll be whole lot of change in regards to making more of it fiber and, and whatnot mm. so therefore MBN's is going for at least another 10 years not let alone the maintenance spend um then we've put in other things cyber security i'm sure you as a digital business i do know else mm-hmm. we've had our um not issues but our you, know, you come across something they're called phishing emails <laughs> yeah um you know so that, that that's a big deal um agriculture exports as we we invest in a an oat and hay processing business and a, um, a blast freezing business. So you obviously look at all the agricultural exports to Asia and Europe and other places like that. Yeah, you know, they're real tailwinds. Aged care, everyone's getting older, unfortunately, mm. including me. You know, that's a tailwind that's not going away. So that it just makes it easier. I think for us, when we take such large concentrated positions and long-term positions, I don't think we can think, we can't have the attitude that we're smart enough to figure about the industry and just say what well, valuations are ultimately going to dictate how this investment translates into a financial return because, I don't, I, as I said, I've learned a couple of examples, you know, um, that, that just doesn't occur. Mm-hmm. The market's too smart. Um, and one thing I've always been taught as a kid, especially from chartists, is no matter how smart you are, there's someone out there who probably always knows more than you do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you see a chart tipping over or a long-term trend and then, you know, you think, oh, in hindsight, that was a really bad investment and that's the reason why, um, that's why I just think it pays to invest in industries where at least you've got some, even if it's a small tailwind, as long as it's not an atrocious headwind.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, fair point. I don't know if it was you that did this update, but I think it's in your roadshow on now, um, where you talked about, I suppose, this herd mentality um, with passive investing. Mm. In your opinion, where do you see the weaknesses in passive investing in, in with small caps? Because I'm interested to drill into yeah. that because a lot of people probably don't know this. Yeah, yeah, that's...
1: Well, I suppose the ultimate weakness is they invest in small caps that I would say aren't small caps because ETFs are so large, they're Mm -hmm. investing in the small ordinaries. You know, people forget the small ordinaries is literally, I think, it'd be the the largest company in the small ordinaries would be like the 101st biggest company in the ASX by liquidity. Mm -hmm. It's really not that small. Like, I would consider that produce successful mature mm-hmm. business so that would be so for me that's the biggest issue with passive or etf investing in small caps you know then i suppose the ability to trade in and out or be etf i'm sure would do it well makes it makes it hard but at the same time i can understand why people use etfs especially in the market that we've had because everyone's so all well, nails look at your short-term performance it's poor and say so, sure if i if, if i had an etf i've been in the after pays and the altiums and the. can't think of another one um zero zero i've been in those um because they're industry agnostic valuation agnostic um and you're not and clearly you've made the poor decision here and Mm -hmm. that's a fair comment i mean you can't argue with that because etfs are completely removed for any psychological biases or whatever biases the fund manager may have um and we all go through it you know some of the biggest names Mm -hmm. in the world have gone through it and, and it makes it hard because as a fund manager, these ETFs get bigger. Some of these valuations are getting bigger and that, that tide's getting stronger. So ultimately, it's going to say, well, this lasts forever. Or is the fund manager going to go out of business? That's uh, happening. Mean, I've seen some well-known US managers that have shut down lately um, just because they found it too hard. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I'm, I'm still an avid believer that in small caps and especially micro cap because you just can't get into that space as a big ETF, that's where it, that's where you can truly add value, mm-hmm. but ultimately for a manager to add value, and I think you're seeing this lately, is they're going to have to own fewer stocks and take bigger positions if they want to charge a fee. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, obviously the days of owning 40 or 50 stocks are probably gone, mm-hmm. in my view, because you just you can't hide from the index. You know, the index will do what it does, um, and if you're too close to that, whether or not even if you're half a bit percent above or half percent below, you just you won't have a business case.
0: Yeah. yeah. Would you say that there are some systemic risks to the passive investing?
1: Obviously, going through the GFC, you saw a little bit of it. And I think it was interesting when we went through the correction, if you call it a correction, we had at the end of calendar year 18. Mm. Even some of my staff members, you know, they hadn't seen this. Mm. And, you know, and there were some big moves. You know, you you look at some stocks are down 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 35% in the space of a month. Mm. You know, I'm just. I just think there's a serious issue when some of these ETFs, and there's lots of them, uh, invest such big licks of capital in relatively small, more illiquid – I wouldn't call them illiquid, but for them they would call them a liquid, illiquid businesses. And when the liquidity comes out, um, it'll be interesting to see well, what's left over and how do they get out and what price. And essentially they'll be price agnostic. They'll get out at any price. Um, so that's ultimately the risk. But I suppose some people will say, well – you know, for that to happen, you've really got to go through a significant change mm. in the financial or economic, global economic environment. And so maybe that won't occur like it did in the GFC or more recently. You know, I think there'll always be a place for passive investing. And a lot of our clients use ETFs. Mm. Uh, but a lot of people come to us because they say, I want a micro cap exposure. And clearly, we think you guys do it well, mm. you know. Um, and that's why we exist. Are we ever going to do big cap equities? No. Um, probably because of that reason it's hard and it's, and it's very efficient
0: yeah. well I suppose that's you, know, you fish in the pond where you can get an edge I suppose
1: yeah you like to think you can yeah
0: um, while we're on that when a client does come to you what would you say is your edge yeah. knowledge
1: Yeah. knowledge and information and
0: that's gathered through meetings yeah, through industry contacts etc
1: yeah I think you know a lot of it's not just spent with you know I suppose the leaders of the respective businesses it's it's met at the pub with clients in mm-hmm. Bendigo it's met at competitors unlisted competitors because they, they see our shareholdings and sometimes they approach us and they'll, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because you know they're going to come to you with a massive negative view on your investment yep. so you're always your stomach's churning a little bit while you're having this <laughs> phone call um, but you develop some very good relationships and they always come back. And even though they've got a different view to you, um, it just improves your knowledge base. So meeting with a lot of these unlisted competitors, uh, we've got a, a service that we use. We can meet with a lot of ex-staff members uh, right. quite easily. And just using that over many years, you know, directors, ex-directors, say customers, ex-employees, um, it just gives you, a, in our view, it gives you a great knowledge base to make a sound investment, albeit it may not represent anything in the short term. We just think over the long term, it allows us to make some smarter decisions that we can hand on heart and say, well, we think this is gonna develop into a sound long-term investment. Hmm. Uh, It may not happen in the next six months though, yeah. Hmm.
0: Okay. You touched on it earlier on, but I'll ask it anyway. Hmm. A common thread with the guests that come on this show is that the people that I speak to are typically founders or the portfolio managers mm-hmm. um you obviously own a big stake mm-hmm. in naos mm-hmm. um and you invest in the funds would you ever invest in the f- with the fund manager who who doesn't have that alignment no yeah. and no. why is that is it the same um, reason with the
1: companies it's just i just think you, you live and die by i've been taught my whole career you live and die by your unit price you know i I had a shareholder come up to me in Perth and he was very interested in the NAOS funds and he was learning about the space. And I said, that's fine. To be honest, the first thing I said to him, I said, you know, here, here, here you go. these are four managers that I would invest my own money with and here's why. Um, and when you go through that, and I was only telling him because, to be honest, I hate talking about my own funds. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. just I find it a bit embarrassing. And those four managers, when I look at it, um they're all founder-led. They would all have a lot of skin in the game. And I think I know, even though we're, we're, I wouldn't consider us a successful funds management business yet, um, I know how hard it is um, and what's required, hopefully, um, to be successful and to make it work. And I just think if you don't have everything or a lot Mm. invested as you know running your own business i just don't think you can have the same commitment passion and dedication to make the best decision for your investors because if it's your money that hurts and believe me i'm hurting after the last six months (laughs) um you know i'll do everything i can to make the next best decision and ultimately that should benefit me and then it'll benefit my shareholders Mm -hmm. if you if you don't and if you can trade personally and you know invest in other stocks i just think it gets very gray um (laughs) And I think that's a that's a deep dark place that I don't really want to go down. To be honest,
0: yeah, I agree with you. Um, okay, you said it earlier on. You do road shows, yeah. You do is it two a year in each of the major cities. capital cities? Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. I sp- can anyone come along to that, or is it?
1: Yeah, no, strictly get, no. Yet we, are, as someone told us, it was a little bit disgruntled when they were signing in on Adelaide. He was not a shareholder, but as he rightfully said, you don't have to be a shareholder. So you know, anyone oh. and everyone comes, and that's the idea. The idea is just. Uh, you know as I said to you at the beginning I actually enjoy it because I find I'm quite transparent and a bit cynical but pretty objective yep. um, and they can just get to hear it from the horse's mouth and especially when things are good or things are bad they get to ask me why'd you make that decision why do you still believe it's a good investment um, and it's it's just a good way to meet your shareholder base because we've got we've got 8,000 yeah. investors now so you know you got to Try and do your best to see as many as you can,
0: and you get a few coming along to the events, no doubt.
1: Yeah, so we'll get six hundred, I think, this time, like across the country. That's great. I don't know if it's good or bad, but you know, when I when I started, I remember doing my first Perth one, and I flew all the way to Perth. I think we had five people. Well, so you know, you got to start somewhere. Yeah, that you Uh, do. (laughs)
0: Absolutely, (laughs) you do. Um, You've got the Naos website. Mm -hmm. There's a blog and insights page there. There's a newsletter. listeners can subscribe to
1: yeah so we do a obviously we've got our month in reports if anyone wants to read those but the one we get most views to is we do a ceo insight letter once a week and it's literally just quotes that we've found from like we'll go through transcripts off Bloomberg. Where, so like today, the JB Hi-Fi mm-hmm. conference call will be on. So Bloomberg, because it's so expensive, will uh, give you a digital transcript. Um, and we'll go through and just highlight some of the key quotes. And we'll give people a summary of some of the key quotes that we think are quite relevant. Mm-hmm. And we send that out weekly. And surprisingly, and there's actually a lot of managing directors and you know more influential people on that list. Mm-hmm. So people tend to read that as opposed to our newsletters. But yeah, you can sign up for, for as much or as little as you want. Yeah. Great.
0: You have a podcast as well.
1: Yeah, we uh, it was you were, you start the new year obviously with your business goals, as I'm sure you have. And the, the idea was one of my big ones, albeit I'm 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 probably the idiot who says this is what I would like to do, but I'm not willing to do it. Um, <laughs> is it was, was a podcast, and the reason why is I listen to a number of podcasts on my phone mainly mm-hmm. you probably do as well they're mm-hmm. obviously in the u.s i remember listening to one topic topic was on howard schultz the starbucks guy who's mm-hmm. now maybe maybe not running to for, for president i found it great and i just thought there'd be a, there are some in australia but i think there aren't many in australia that do it with and i could be wrong um you know listed businesses in that mid-cap small cap space especially people who i would consider in very high regard yeah um so, pleasingly, my team, um, uh, unfortunately for them, sort of mm-hmm. picked it up and we, we've done three. So, we interviewed the founder of NetWealth, the founder of Mollus and Company in Australia. He's mm-hmm. um, the chairman of the Swans. It's, what was the other one? I forgot the other I'm the founder of Credible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting. So, I think for me, especially running my own business, I'm very intrigued to see how they got their leg up. You know, how did they... How long do they have to persist for? And, mm. you know, people key to their business. How do you know it's a big one for running my own business? Is the people businesses, how do they incentivize people? How do they keep them interested? How do they bring them along for the journey? Because mm. um, I found as our business gets bigger, stuff becomes more challenging, keeping them involved. They want to make more decisions, you know, things like that. Mm. Um, so hopefully, we, I think the hardest thing for us will be trying to get enough businesses who are willing to mm. go on the podcast for us.
0: Well, that's always the, the challenge, I think, with these types of shows. But, um, I suppose you get access with your, your research as well. Um, I noticed there was a blog update from you guys um, listing, I think it was 10 podcasts of 2018, mm. and um, Invest Like the Best was on there, but also um, How I Built This.
1: Yep. Great podcast. Like yeah, we yeah. listen to that quite a lot. My, I like the... Um is a bit of a random American, but the Bloomberg one uh, with Barrow Richholz. Oh, yeah. So he's, Masters in Business. Yeah, Masters in Business. I mean, yeah. sometimes you get some weird ones, but I've, sometimes I think you get some good ones. But just, yeah, listen to how I built this. I remember the one listening to, it um, was a really good one, the founder of Dyson. So, Jamie oh, yeah. Dyson, that's yeah, James. That's, yeah. yeah, it's an unreal podcast. Some yeah, great stories fantastic. out there. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, to be honest, I think it comes back to the way we, and to diverge for a second, comes back to the way we invest in Australia. So I think you look at some of these stories. It bears no recollection of the Australian equity market. I mean, you'd almost fall asleep with some of these businesses. You know the way they're run, and you mm. know how how short term they are. If you look at some of the businesses that really innovate and want to change and make a difference and take a long term view, I mean, how many are there? Mm. I mean, I can't think of many. Like, everyone will refer to CSL, and that's why Aussie big cap managers probably struggle a little bit because they've got to own so much CSL because it's such a big part of the index. But mm. it's been the best performing stock for so long, mm. um, and it's a shame. You'd like to see my view is you'd like to see more of that come back into the Aussie equity market because all the good ones get taken off for sure
0: yeah. okay last question yeah. if you could go back and tell a younger you something about finance money or investing what would it be
1: like with our own money or just just you
0: personally could be something a personal trade could be
1: oh look I mean I'll cop out and say obviously enjoy what you do and mm-hmm. work and think for me enjoy what you do persist you know don't the amount of times I've been knocked down in quite a vicious way Mm-hmm. Um, I think some people probably wouldn't get back up, um, but just persist and put your, you know be transparent. Put your cards on the table. Don't you know or you can take no, but especially if, as I've got young, older, you know, when I was younger, I wasn't like this. But yeah, you know, listen, listen to people's opinion, especially some older people around you. I, I used to be probably a bit obnoxious and think it was a mm-hmm. joke, uh, but I think now I look back and think you know that was quite smart. These people have been around for a lot longer than I have, so I think if you can enjoy it, listen to some smart people and persist and really really get stuck into it. You can do whatever you want, whether it's in finance or industry or whatever it is. That's sort of what I would take away from my last sort of 11 or so years. Mm, Great. Great advice, Sebastian. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thanks again for tuning into the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.